This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie Garcia, a pastor here at Trinity. And um, Advent is over. We, we took down the lights, although there's still a tree to be taken down. Uh, and if you'll remember, we were, before Advent, we were studying through the book of Acts, and then we took a pause, and we're going to pick back up, and this will take us all the way through uh, to Lent. So, um, so we're back in Acts, and if you'll remember, the way that we're talking about the book of Acts is like, it's like the origin story of the early church. It, it sort of chronicles the lives of the very earliest Christians, and it's really helpful to see how the earliest Christians lived and to see if it gives us insight into how you and I as modern Christians should be living our lives. Um, so we're going to study chapter 19 today. And uh, since we're picking it back up, uh, I am going to summarize where we have been. Now some of you guys are just like, y'all love it when I geek out and do like Bible frameworks and things like that. And some of you guys also want to take a nap. All right, so I need y'all, some of you need some stamina learning the Bible a little bit. Um, and then for those of you who just love this part, well, here we go. I'll give you about five minutes of summary. So if you remember in the book of Acts, it picks up in chapter one, Jesus is resurrected, right? He died on a cross. He's resurrected the third day. He is walking with his disciples for about 40 days. And right before he ascends to the right hand, he looks at his disciples and he says to them, I want you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the world, right? And so that line ends up being like this table of contents for how the book of Acts works, right? So Jesus ascends. He leaves us physically, but he pours out his spirit. There's the, that's Pentecost. It's powerful. And that is actually the empowering of these witnesses to do what he's asking them to do. And so the whole book of Acts is just chronicling that. So chapters 1 through 7 is the witnesses in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 is the witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 13 through 28 are the witnesses going to the ends of the earth. Now, in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, there, is, there are these two shifts. The first shift is the, the story is being told, was being told through Peter, the apostle Peter, but now it's being told through Paul. So chapters 1 through 12, the primary protagonist and storyteller is Peter. And then 13 on, it moves to the apostle Paul. So that's the first shift. The second shift is that the center, the headquarters of Christian mission moves from Jerusalem. So chapters 1 through 12, it's Jerusalem-centered. And then 13 on, the headquarters now is Antioch. Antioch. Now, that's really important because in Antioch is where we see the Apostle Paul go on three missionary journeys. His first missionary journey we see in chapters 13 and 14. All right, nerd, are y'all nerding out here a little bit? All right. The second missionary journey, journey is 16, chapter 16 through 18. And then the third missionary journey is chapter like middle of 18 or 19 through 21. I, I bring this up because today we are studying chapter 19. Paul is in his third missionary journey and he's walking into Ephesus. 
And now, to date, all the way getting up to chapter 19, the church, it is growing wildly, like wildfire, uh, wildfire, even though there are these really intense threats against the church, both internal threats and external threats. No, most notably, the Christians, you have to understand, the Christians are religious minorities, and so there's a ton of persecution. Most of the persecution early on actually came from the Jews, which is kind of weird because Christians see themselves as a fulfillment or a completion of the, Jewish, of the Jewish religion, right? But most of the heat's coming from the Jews. Um, but the Spirit uses that persecution, gets these witnesses all over the place. And, um, but because the Jews are, are, are not as responsive to the gospel, the Apostle Paul starts preaching to the Gentiles. So you're going to start seeing this Gentile mission. If you don't know what a Gentile is, it's anyone who's not a Jew, like us, right? So Paul's like preaching to the Gentiles, and it's just a matter of time just like the Jews, the Gentiles start putting some heat on the Christians. And in chapter 19, there is a massive riot. And Christians are on the brink of getting strung up. And, uh, and it's because the Gentiles in Ephesus are claiming that the Christians are subverting the social order. And the truth is, they kind of are. But it's not what you think. It's not what you think. And this is where, all right, we just geeked out for a second. Y'all understand how acts work. But this is where I want you to kind of lock it in just a little bit so we can really learn from um, the, the Bible here together. One of the biggest turnoffs of the Christian faith is not our unwavering care for the unborn, although it's not that popular. It's not our traditional sexual ethics, although we are like not popular in that either. It's not our generosity and hospitality and preference for immigrants, although a lot of people don't like that either. It's none of those things. People get turned off by Christian. What, what really gets people turned off by Christianity is the fact or the idea that a person can accept Jesus and yet it make absolutely no difference in his or her life. Or in some cases, it makes people worse. That has turned more people off from Christianity than any other thing, any other platform. And I bring this to your attention because in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel in such a powerful way that it fundamentally alters the lives of the converts. So the message of Jesus has these real teeth in people's everyday life. And so what we're going to see in chapter 19 is that so there's so many people coming to Jesus, giving their life to them, and it changed their lives. It changed the way they walked in the world. It changed their choices that they were making. And ultimately, it affected an entire economy. Tons of people gave their lives, and so people stopped buying these idols, these little shrines, these idols, and it threw a major wrench in the economy. And people stopped making money, and it got... So bad that no matter how kind Christians were, how tolerant, how patient, how loving they were, it doesn't matter, they would become victims of a riot. Their faith had that kind of impact on the culture, and people were not ready to give up their idols. They're not ready for their gods to be threatened, no matter how kind the Christians were. So today we're going to read this story, and we're going to see the expectations of the early church 
in their Christian life as they interact with the culture in which they're embedded. And we're going to see that, and we're going to learn these two expectations that they had. The first expectation that the church had was they expected to use persuasion and logic, not force, never power. There's never power plays with Christians. That's what they expected to use logic and persuasion. Second, they expected hostility against them. They never expected peace, even though they were peaceful. So those are those two expectations. I think we can learn from that, and we're going to learn that as we give ourselves to God's word. In reverence to God's word, if you're able, would you stand with me? Um, this is quite a passage. It's pretty long. It's a really interesting story. So let's give our, our best attention, starting in Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were, Paul, or who were Paul's companions in travel. But Paul wished to go in among the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will endure forever. May he bless it for all of us. Amen. I'm going to kind of get that water. Another right there. I got it. That one. All right. This is good. Great. Uh, strong start, Garcia. All right. Uh, that's a story, right? 
that's a terrific, unbelievable story. Uh, at first glance, it seems almost unthinkable that uh, a group of Christian Christians lived so deeply into their faith that it would send shockwaves into the city. I mean, have you ever seen that? Have Christians ever lived that awesomely, that it just shockwaves in the whole city? That's what happens. That's what happens. One of the reasons why it's unthinkable, it's like off the menu of our imagination, is because most, your modern evangelical thinks of the church as a nice place where respectable people go to ensure their children grow up to be polite, right? Now, listen, I'm all for being polite, everyone. That's not what's going on here. It's important that you understand this. The church exists to be a a, a counterculture, a counter-society within a dominant culture in society. Now, this is really important for you guys to get. In our society and culture, there are these broadly accepted sets of beliefs that are so ingrained in the people. These are beliefs that are underneath our beliefs. These are the beliefs that give, uh, that give, um, like that produce beliefs, and we don't even realize that we have them. But they're so into, uh, and, uh, elemental that it creates um, that that it it actually um, shapes people's intuitions. It makes them tend to think that the world works a certain way. Now, there's a fancy way of describing this. Sociologists call this a plausibility structure, all right? You might be hearing a lot about this recently. But the things in the world that feel right or that they feel wrong are the product of this plausibility structure, this web of beliefs. The things in the world that feel desirable or undesirable they're not just because they make you you. It's because you're swimming in this, in, this, in this plausibility structure, this web of understandings and beliefs about how the world is. And so because our society is swimming in this, what I'll call unconscious or even pre-conscious set of beliefs, um, and, and let me say, it's sort of like a fish in water, right? A fish doesn't know, even know what water is because it's so prevalent, right? So... Because there is, the, the culture has a certain way of thinking about things. Now, it hopefully comes as no surprise to you guys that the church is supposed to be an alternate society that offers and proposes a different plausibility structure, all right? Now, the, the idea is that um, when the church is being this thing, this alternate city within the city, that people in the culture can look at the church and say, whoa, well, there's a, there's a different way to do life. And it, it looks better. It looks more hopeful. I mean, the way that the, the church talks about sex and the way the church talks about money and politics and race relations, like, whoa, Christians are playing by a whole different set of rules, right? And the culture sees and they can feel the difference in the church, not because we make poster boards with grumpy slogans, right? Not because of our social media feeds that are filled with articles from websites that no one's even heard of. That's not, that's not why we're making a difference. It's because there is a noticeably different texture to our love and patience and care even though we stand out like a sore thumb because of our moral and ethical lives, and we're quite different. And all of this 
is different than the predominant culture. And so when people notice it, when people notice it, and they do, if we're living the lives we ought to be living, they are either really drawn to it and they desire it, or we become the object of their derision and contempt, and they get a little nasty with us. So in the first century, a little bit of both was happening. People were desiring it and treating it with contempt. So the early church, you guys, understood that their faith had real teeth and that they were to be an alternate society within the society itself. And because they had this self-understanding, there were these two expectations that the early church had. The first expectation, and and now we're going back to our, our outline, is that their faith would be successfully transmitted through reason and through persuasion. All right? The early church, you guys, had no social or political power. They're never clamoring for power because they never had any, right? They, 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 were, they, they were never worried about their rights because they had no rights. That's the early church. So they expected that they had to use reason and persuasion. That was the capital. That was the currency that they had. So conversions, right, are happening like wildfire, so much so that these entire regions are being shaken. But conversion was never by coercion, right? Rather, it was by the application and power of God's word meaningfully applied to their lives. And so you actually see that by Demetrius's response in our text. So Demetrius, let me just fill you in. He's like this kind of union leader, uh, for a guild that worked with silver, right? So the, the silversmiths in Ephesus were kind of a big deal. So years earlier, what had happened is a meteorite hit the area. They took that as a sign from the goddess Artemis. Now, Artemis is a Greek goddess. She's the goddess of the moon, the hunt, uh, of the harvest, fertility, all those things. Those were kind of her domains. In other words, what that really meant is she's the one who gave blessings to, to financial prosperity. So after that meteorite hits around Ephesus, they build this temple. Now you guys know it by the Greek name, the Temple Diana. But they build this temple. It is seven times bigger than the Parthenon, y'all. You can still see it to this day. Google it, right? It is this enormous attraction, and it's extremely profitable. That's what I want you to hear. So this guild of silversmiths, they made a ton of idols in silver to Artemis, and people would buy those and use them seeking out financial prosperity and blessing, right? And so there's Paul there, who obviously does not believe in idols, and people are giving their lives to Jesus in mass, right? And the question is, like, how did Paul do it? Well, Demetrius tells us, look there in verse 26, Demetrius says, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has what? Persuaded and turned away a great many people. Paul has no power play. He's appealing to their minds and their hearts, He's offering them a counter-plausibility structure, a different way of understanding and interpreting the world that's deeply resonating with them and makes more sense of the world than their former structures and reasoning. 
So, the, so that is how the whole early, Paul represents how the whole early church grew. They always knew that they didn't have political power, social clout. It was always reasoning and persuasion. I think that means something for us today. Hopefully, I do a little bit of that here even, but that's how we ought to live our lives. So the first expectation is that they have to be persuasive. Now, there is a second expectation, and, and it's that the church expected that there would be conflict. They just expected that's how they're going to be treated. So the early church understood that their faith, when they received Jesus, that it wasn't just some set of austere beliefs in their brains, right? It wasn't just this information. It's not academic. It actually changed their choices. And it happened, you guys, on such a wide scale that people stopped buying these idols in mass. So in verse 26, Demetrius says about Paul and the other Christians that, that they're persuading people. And then it says, it continues, by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. <laughs> and they, they begin to see the implications. Verse 27. And there, Demetrius says, and there's this danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So once the people understood that their idols were being attacked, all the Christians knew that the violence would come. The early church understood that their claims about Jesus Christ were so totalizing that even if they say things with kindness and tolerance and patience and compassion, it's just a matter of time until they would be treated with hostility. Why? Because the thing that was giving the culture meaning and identity and security was being threatened. That's what's happening in Ephesus, you guys. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out. What did they say? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled. The city, man, was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions and travels. And we're talking like a shark feeding frenzy. I mean, this is like shark week in ancient Ephesus. It's getting nuts. And Paul was like, Oh, those are my boys in there. I got to go help them out. I'm going to go into the theater and I'm going to use my, my logic and my reasoning. And his friends are like, yeah, not right now, Paul. I don't think that, 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 that technique's going to work right now. Uh, we're not letting you go in there. But here's the deal. You start messing with someone's bank account and things are going to get real. Do you know why? Because that's their God. That's their idol. Uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, he says it like this. He says, regardless of your credo, your religious beliefs, whatever you say you believe, your God is anything in your life that is so central that you can't have a meaningful life without it. If I have that thing, I have meaning. If I don't have that thing, I don't, I don't know how I can live. And so the pagans, you guys, they had dozens and dozens and dozens of gods. I mean, they had gods of the sun, the moon, the hunt, fertility, war. I mean, they had gods for everything. And that might seem crazy to you, but they're actually quite smart. You know why? Because they understood, they understood that anything could become a god. That's why they had so many gods. If you make any, and listen, you guys, if you make anything so important in your life that if you were to lose it, it would undo you, 
you have yourself a God. Losing it would make you angry and hostile and anxious. Almost anything can take on the form of a functional God. Anything you look to for meaning and security is your God, because that's what God's supposed to do, by the way. And for this reason, although we don't have any shrines here on La Roosevelt, we don't have any shrines here, I can promise you, at the club, at our schools, we are still a country filled with idols. Idols. And the subversion of idols can explain so much hostility in our country and even against Christians, however kind you are. Now, let me just mention just one particular uh, application, because i got to cut this short. But understanding this definition of idolatry, what I'm proposing to you, which is part of the Christian plausibility structure, has so many benefits for living out our faith in a politically polarizing time. So in God's providence, we talked about a riot today. Riots are kind of on the brain, aren't they? Uh, So this week, we saw a rally convened to protest the certification of ballots for the Electoral College. It erupted into a mob, broke into the Capitol, shots were fired, legislators were on lockdown, one person died from gun wounds. And, uh, like, how do you explain this feeding frenzy, Shark Week Part 2? How do you explain this? Now, listen, if if you're reading the news, there are these competing narratives that people employ to explain what happened. One narrative is, uh, it's the narrative of patriots who are protecting democratic processes by protesting a fraudulent election, right? If an election is fraudulent, then you must violently fight for it. That's one narrative to explain why there's a riot. The other one is um, the narrative that the United States is so incurably evil, so certain anarchists infiltrated the ranks pose as something else to destabilize a democracy. That's another narrative. Republicans are looking at the Democrats and saying, yeah, they're all socialists. And the Democrats are looking at the Republicans and saying, yeah, they're all racists. It's all so unhelpful. Like, it's so unhelpful. Everyone. But here's the deal. People will tend to find plausible the explanation that supports what they already believe, right? They're just, people are just looking to be supported in what they already believe. Everyone is highly motivated to simplify and reduce each other, to reduce them to a talking point instead of seeing them as creatures who are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. And the reason why we do that, we reduce people to talking points, is because it's easier to justify our own harsh words and hostility and actions against them. It's hard to do that to a person. It's really easy to do that to a talking point. And when enough of us are doing that, you have really fertile soil for a violent riot, whether it's in D.C. or Portland or any other city. You see, I'm an equal opportunity offender if you're not listening closely. We're talking about violence everywhere, any riot. Can I just tell you the supreme value of the Bible? Because I really want you to think that Acts chapter 19 like, is so big. It's going to give us an explanation for understanding the riot, the violence, the protests that is far deeper than anything you're reading on national news. The best way to explain the violence is through idolatry. Somebody's functional God is being subverted 
and we are mad about it, right? Things are changing, you guys. Our tax policy is changing. The sentimentality of our childhood in the South, our view of race, our legal protections for Christians, our community's demography, our cultural and sexual ethics, everything is changing, and it's changing fast. And our society has found more comfort, more security, more identity in those things and those platforms than they have in the Lord himself. And since those things seem to be at stake, and perhaps they are, we're getting violent. Because our God's, our God's being subverted. Y'all see that? Idolatry. CNN, Fox News, not talking about that, are they? Listen, and, and here's what I want you to hear. Idols, they actually don't have to be bad things. They just have to be more important than God himself. They just have to be bigger than God. That's all they have to be. A good thing that's bigger than God. And you know that you have an idol when you're not just sad or disappointed about something, but you're attackingly angry about it. That's when you know that you've got some idols. See, the riot on the Capitol was not about the things that were on their banners. Whatever they said they were there for, that's not actually what they were there for. It was about their functional gods being threatened. So Christians... Y'all, we, there's a riot going on back there in our kids' room. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, clearly, they're having a good time. All right, here we go. But here's the thing. Christians, you guys, we play by a whole different set of rules because we have a different plausibility structure. It's, and now here's what I want you to hear. It's not that Christians are moderate between the left and the right. We're not just like balanced between the left and the right. We're on a whole different field right? We're playing on a different plane, a different spectrum. And because we're on a whole different spectrum, that when these things are subverted, even things we might even care about, we're not angry or attacking or anxious. We're not. In fact, like the early church, we just expect hostility. We just expect it. And listen to me, and I'll end here. And I say, let it come. Because the last time that Christians were fed to lions and used in gladiator games, the church's influence absolutely exploded. I mean, Christians were being crucified just like their Savior. And as there's an axe to their head, as there's an axe to their head, they die singing hymns. They're dying with joy. This, this passage in Acts 19, it's going to end like this. A town clerk, he's kind of like a mayor. He's going to tell everyone to chill out. They do. The riot subsides. Paul survives it. Listen, Paul risked his life for the gospel. But Jesus, your Savior, gave his life for you. And when Christians actually believe that, when they really believe it, all their idols begin to fade away. Christians are surprisingly hopeful because we don't have idols that can be killed, right? I mean, you can kill our God, but he's going to resurrect on the third day, right? Our hope then is secure. If, 
You can kill our God, but he resurrects because he is the unkillable Jesus. And if you want to make sense, if you want to make sense of even the, the psychological and existential peace that Christians really have, then you have to go through Jesus. That's the only way to understand Christian witness as an alternate society within a society. We're going to continue to study Acts, and we're going to continue to be persuaded by Jesus' gospel. Amen. Amen.